This is Rebecca McKendry. And this is David Ian McKendry. And you are listening to the Horror Movie Podcast, where we are dead serious about horror movies. Dead. Welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. This is a bi-weekly show that's released every other Monday, and this is episode 174. This episode of Horror Movie Podcast is brought to you by our Movie Podcast Network patrons. On Horror Movie Podcast, you get in-depth horror movie reviews for classics and new releases, with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. This is Gilman Joel Robertson, and my co-hosts tonight are... Dave Dr. Shock Becker from just outside Philadelphia, PA. Wolfman Josh. I'm going to go upstairs and lie down. <laughs> that might be for the best. On this episode of Horror Movie Podcast, it's a continuation of our At Your Mercy coverage, where we turn the show over to you, the listeners, as we watch and review movies you requested that we cover. In addition to these reviews, you'll get our Collector's Crypt segment, listener feedback, and much, much more. All right, Wolfman, let's kick it off. I just had a few corrections I wanted to make. Number one, I think at the time of recording last time, we said that we had 98 submissions. Looking at it now, we had actually 114 uh, for that first episode. And then since then, we've got probably another... 12 or so that came in as reactions to that episode that we're choosing from. So we've, we've got quite a few. I'll put the, all the new submissions in the show notes for this episode. But if you want to see all 114 of the original listener pick submissions, uh, go ahead and check out the show notes for episode 173. Now, the biggest correction that I have to make is kind of an apology to Grave Robert. Um, I mentioned last time that both Grave Robert and Juan had selected Bedeviled. And I said there were two Bedevilds, and I um, mistakenly at first thought they meant the 2016-2017 release, which apparently I referred to as atrocious <laughs> during the episode. Um, that was the one that Grave Robert was suggesting. So. I reviewed the wrong movie, at least with regard to Grave Robert's suggestion. I did review the correct movie um, with regard to Juan's suggestion, but uh, I I told Grave Robert, I, I apologize. I was going to try to catch that and maybe mini review it before this episode, but I just haven't had time. I'm leaving town really soon. We're actually recording this episode about a week early, so I will not have time to see Bedeviled. My apologies for that. That's excellent, Josh, but I do have a quick question. Yes. Do you apologize to him for calling it atrocious? Well, sight unseen. I hadn't oh, okay. actually seen the movie. I just thought it looked terrible. So That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I had um, assisted with putting the list together 
initially and it was kind of tough because there are movies that were recommended and they were not you know years after them like the fly and right. the fly 2 okay i'm assuming it's the 80s the fly and the fly 2 but both of them obviously were also from the i think it was late 50s yeah. early 60s so it's hard to it's hard to sometimes guess and especially when you get sometimes generic titles where there could be like if someone said the black cat there could be five of them out there yeah, in fact, the Black Death was one that was suggested that I couldn't figure out which version it was. There were several films called The Black Death. All of them seemed seemingly to do with the plague, and I wasn't quite sure uh, which one that was, Nadia. So my apologies. I, I actually tried to watch that as one of my picks, but I couldn't figure out which version it was. Yeah, so not everyone included the year, but I don't, you know, that's probably nothing to get too torn up about they no, could have included no. the year the year if they wanted to <laughs> right, right i would like to add too as by being this is my first at your mercy episode how unbelievably i'm impressed i am with the listeners of the show that we oh, had yeah. that many submissions i mean these are yeah. folks who listen to the show they're obviously fans of the show and they took their time to make these suggestions and these are some excellent suggestions across the board the thing that actually bothered me the most about this list is that there were so many on this that I wanted to cover, but I was mm. trying to adhere to that rule that I know we said it's, it's sort of arbitrary as a rule that you don't, it doesn't have to be something you have never seen, but I was trying to do that. Uh -huh. I, I thought it yeah. makes it more fun in a way to do it that way. But there were some that jumped out at me that I have, that I've seen, but it's been so long and I was trying to rationalize and justify it. And then there's some, there's really no excuse like stepfather too, because every couple of years I revisit it anyway. And I realized <laughs> I would be lying to myself and everybody to be like, Oh yes, I haven't seen this in forever, but I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. But honestly, then when, uh, Ashley, barely Ashley recommended popcorn. I was like, Oh, come on. That's not fair. Cause I haven't seen that in a long time, but I love that movie. Plus, as I told her in the mm. comments, I also love to go buy a bag, go home in a box every possible chance I can. So, but yeah, this and list that, is fantastic. What impressed me was just the, the selection of films and some that I hadn't even heard of before. Uh, unfortunately I couldn't find a few of them either, but it was, I mean, that's what I was really impressed with was just yeah. uh, the, 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 the diversity of, of movies that were recommended. And, uh, and that happens every time. You know, every time we have one of these, we, we get uh, diverse uh, lists. And it's just so much fun to sort of pick through them and find the ones that, yeah, this, is, this looks really interesting. I, I want to watch this. And kind of speaking to both of those points, I think that's why we did two of these episodes back to back as opposed to the one episode we were originally planning on. So we kind of wanted to cover as many of these as possible. And even if we didn't select your pick, I think a lot of these films are now more on our radar. And I, I've been kind of thinking about themed episodes going forward and movies would like to cover maybe even on Frankensteinian episodes. So. Yes, that will be excellent. And then the other correction we had to make was related to Dave. Do you want to handle that one, Dave? Yes. For some reason, I was saying Synapse was the company that put out Next of Kin, and it wasn't. It was Severin. I even had Severin written down in my notes, and for some reason, I just kept saying Synapse. But it is a Severin Blu-ray, and well worth picking up as i said in the in the last episode so if you were 
searching for synapse you weren't going to find it yeah, which i didn't i was i was on the synapse site looking for it for quite a while and yeah. it's like yeah it's gotta be here somewhere see, it's funny i never do that i just go straight to amazon and i look at the different titles so i <laughs> i gotta well, and be, I more, did, you know, be more mindful of that now and i actually did that for vicious victor's recommendation of the innocence after listening to his little mini review i thought i'm gonna pick that up too so i went to amazon to buy it and i almost almost bought the wrong movie the innocence but then i decided to go back and like look in the little notes below and oh yep so i ended up going to the criterion website to find that one because and that's a classic that's a good one you're gonna enjoy that fantastic movie and i did want to mention to victor um we actually were supposed to review that on our women in horror episode a year ago but i misunderstood and for some reason i watched the uninvited and so dave since he had seen both agreed to uh switch our review to the uninvited at the last right. minute right so sorry about that victor we should have reviewed that about over a year ago but right. we'll get to it right and the uninvited is another great one another criterion also as a matter of fact yeah that's the one with ray Meland. correct i actually showed correct. that to my kids when they were like five and six years old and they actually watched wow. the whole thing. They didn't nice. squirm or anything. Yeah. Super impressed. Yeah. My kids watched it with me last year and they really liked it. Excellent. Are we ready to sally forth? Those are just the corrections I wanted to make. I wanted to put these at the beginning because one of our listeners this week said, oh, well, you know, I guess I should listen to the end of the episodes because uh, I didn't even know you guys were doing this and I didn't <laughs> get a chance to submit any picks. And I thought, Oh, that's interesting. So there are people. Mm-hmm. And he even said he drives 30 hours a week and listens to like a hundred podcasts and he still doesn't finish the episodes. And so folks, there's some good stuff at the end of those episodes. Number one, there's our plugs. You want to hear those. I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, right, what are you, what are you tuning out for? Ah, come on. People, promote but also, stuff. If you listen to the very end, oftentimes there's outtakes and I don't know how many people know that, but definitely for the last, I don't know, year or so, I've been adding some outtakes to the ends of the shows uh, occasionally. So uh, it's been more and more frequent as I've been editing more and more because I am a little bit more of a picky editor than our previous editor. So we have a lot of fun outtakes at the ends of the show sometimes. Absolutely. All right. So that brings us to the end of the feedback slash correction part of the show. So let's kick it over to Dave for his At Your Mercy review. What do you got, Dave? All right. I have uh, recommended by Vicious Victor, Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise. 20th Century Fox presents Phantom of the Paradise, a gothic horror story. <laughs> What was that? A beautiful love story. A cinematic odyssey through the rock universe. From Greece to glitter and beyond. The story of a sound. The man who created it. The girl who sang it. The monster who stole it. And the phantom who haunts the paradise. My music is for Phoenix. Only she can sing it. Anyone else that tries, dies. Phoenix. Phoenix. Well, you told me one time that you'd be somebody that you 
Phantom of the Paradise. It is a comedy fantasy horror musical. And it was actually written and directed by Brian De Palma. Uh, the movie, it's interesting. It opens with this sort of 50 style ballad song performed in front of a live audience by a trio. They call themselves the Juicy Fruits. And it's just strange opening. Uh, one member of the band uh, attacks uh, an audience member during the performance and assaults uh, one of the female patrons. But that's just sort of a setup for the insanity to come uh, later in this movie. It's quick synopsis. Record tycoon Swan, played by Paul Williams, is set to premiere his new venue, The Paradise, this brand new club that he's opening. And he wants the perfect music for its grand opening. So he decides to use this sonata based on the legend of Faust penned by a guy named Winslow. That's the Palma regular William Finley in the role. But he doesn't want Winslow to perform it. Even though, you know, Winslow wrote this sonata just for him. He said, this is for me to perform. Well, a month passes. Swan had said to Winslow, hey, we can work together. Uh, so Winslow's really pressing. Hey, when are we going to do something? You know, what are we going to do? But Swan has already stolen the song and is auditioning some female singers including Phoenix, played by Jessica Harper, to perform at the Paradise, you know, when it's has its grand debut. He does eventually decide to go with a heavy metal rocker named Beef, played by Garrett Graham. But during all of this, uh, Winslow, he's really trying to get in to see Swan, finds out his song has been stolen, and that's when his troubles really start. He's arrested outside of Swan's mansion one night and framed by the police as a drug dealer. He's locked away in prison. And while there, he loses his voice, he's hideously deformed in an accident, and he goes completely insane. He eventually escapes from prison, he breaks into the paradise, and becomes its version of The Phantom, a la The Phantom of the Opera. Well, he actually fell in love with Phoenix earlier. He met her while she was in line to audition for Swan. And he decides that now he can't perform his song anymore. He's going to make sure that only... Phoenix will sing it. And that's obviously spells trouble for Swan and his entourage. But it turns out that Swan is not an ordinary record mogul. And there's a showdown between Winslow and Swan. And it's going to take a number of well, very surprising twists and turns before it all plays out. I'll just kind of leave it at that. Some of the contemporary critics, they were kind of mixed on this movie. For the New York Times, Vincent Camby enjoyed the musical numbers, but he said that the concert scenes filled with pandemonium, blinking lights, and extraordinary sounds are well-staged, but hardly seem worth the terrific time and effort that must have been required, you know, to produce them. Gene Siskel wrote in his review that what's up on the screen is childish. It has meaning only because it points to something else. To put it another way, joking about the rock music scene is treacherous because the rock music scene itself is a joke. But Pauline Kale liked the movie. Uh, she says you might anticipate a lot of the plot twists and turns, but it's impossible to guess what's going to come in the next scene, what it's going to look like, or what the rhythm will be. And Kevin Thomas of the LA Times said it was delightfully outrageous. And oh. it is that. This this is a vibrant... I'm sorry. Oh, no. I would, I would just oh, I'm sorry. Oh. I thought you were jumping in there. No, I mean, I was thinking about how Gene Siskel is quite the cold fish. The more I... <laughs> yes, he really I is. He, he really thing. is a cold fish with a lot of this stuff. And he always was in the show. I always lean more towards Ebert than Siskel. <laughs> I mean, almost every time. 
Now, Phantom of the Paradise is a vibrant, it is a visually enticing film. It has these grand and strange set pieces, mm. and it does have a very unique style. Uh, Paul Williams, is he's very understated as Swan, but he has a secret to, to hide, which, which makes him even more mysterious. I think the best scene is when he's auditioning musicians of various musical backgrounds, gospel, country, to see who's going to perform this sonata before finally settling on on beef uh the the heavy metal rocker to to open the paradise it's just so engaging that scene the, the way uh, it carries out with him just saying no no and the lights come on and, and sort of shine a light on each one and then as he passes them they go back into darkness it's really pretty cool and jessica harper is also pretty good she's she's the love interest in the film and it is her screen debut. I looked that up. This is Jessica Harper's first film. This was her big screen debut, was this movie. The two standouts for me, though, were Garrett Graham, Beef, but it's William Finley. He's believable as the meek Winslow and the utterly mad Phantom. He does both of them perfect. His costume and mask look great. And he's responsible, as you would expect, for many of the film's creepier moments. When he discovers at one point he's been walled into a basement studio, his reaction is enough to make the hair on your arm stand up. Uh, at least it was for me. Uh, as for the music, it's it's pretty decent. I think Paul Williams penned most of it. The the opening fifties ballad that I talked about is is a parody of the dead teen songs from that era, like you know, "Tell Laura I Love Her" or "Teen Angel," and it's a good one. I mean, it, it fits. It fits with that rhythm, and and you could see this actually being a song uh, from that from the 50s. And Winslow's ballad is always interesting and it's performed by so many different people in this movie, different sections of it anyway. From the opening scenes where he himself is is singing it to Beast's rendition right through to Phoenix's version. I think that's that's a really interesting song and it's a good one to have sort of as an anchor through this film. There are two interesting bits of trivia with the movie. Sissy Spacek assisted with the set decoration. She was dating Jack Fisk, the production designer. They're now married. And this is two years before she starred in De Palma's Carrie. She worked on, on this film, uh, helping design the sets. And the movie did stir up a bit of controversy because the original name of Swan's company, the record label is, is Death Records, but his company was Swan Song, which happened to be the label of rock band Led Zeppelin at the time. And once they found that out, they had to remove all references to Swan Song from the movie. Apparently, you could still see it in the background once or twice. I was reading this recently on Wikipedia. I didn't notice it, but apparently it's still back there. Uh, Phantom of the Paradise, is, it's a bit uneven at times. It does jump from one scene to the next, often without a, you know, with no rhyme or reason. And the over-the-top visuals do eventually lose their luster. But ultimately, it's a lot of fun. I'd probably give this movie a 7.5 out of 10, and I think it's definitely worth checking out. It's excellent, man. It's a great That's review. cool. Yeah, it's it's a wacky film. I've seen bits of it. I don't think I've ever sat down and watched the whole thing. It came up on our heavy metal horror episode. I remember that. But so we were just I guess we ended up talking about punk and rock as well during the heavy metal episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's it's a so good it's a one. unique film for De Palma to do too. That's what gets me. It's 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 it really stands out in his filmography. Uh, when you look at the other the, a lot of his a lot of his other work, especially some of his earlier works, it's a comedy, so it fits there. But it's really 
it 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 just pops. It really pops, and yeah. I I love that about it. And and I think Paul Williams' understated performance really pays off as his character develops as the movie progresses. Yeah, it's one that I had I had never seen and have never seen, and I have always wanted to see. So thank you, Dave, for that excellent review. And now we will go into my Gilman Joel's talking about himself in the third person at your mercy movie review. And I am going to be covering Lake Mungo. I feel like something bad is going to happen to me. It hasn't reached me yet, but it's on its way. The normally tranquil setting of Ararat Mountains. Ten days after Ellie's funeral, stuff started happening around the house. Sounds seemed to come from Ellie's old room. They didn't really relent, so I thought, well, I'll just set up a camera to, you know, see anything. I looked back and there was footage of a figure moving across the hallway. The image was quite unsettling because it certainly looked like Alice. I want you to close your eyes. I usually uh, videotape my sessions. Something was happening inside that house and I wanted to find out what it was. We checked the tapes. There was a ghost in our house. Alice kept secrets. She kept the fact she kept secrets a secret. Something bad is going to happen to me. It hasn't reached me yet, but it's on its way. And it's getting closer. Lake Mungo. Awful title. Don't put that in the show. (laughs) From 2008, although I do believe it was released in the U.S. in 2010, at least if... IMDb is to be believed, but the actual release date, I guess, for its uh, native Australia was 2008. It is an Australian film. It was recommended by The Reverse Shane. So thank you so much for this recommendation. And it is also a movie, I believe, that was covered in episode 96 of Horror Movie Podcast, the Horror Down Under Australian Horror Cinema episode. Can you guys confirm? Yeah, it was just briefly covered when we were kind of doing the overview right. of Australian horror cinema, but it was, well, I think it was one of the ones that got a little bit more attention than the, than the rest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Dave mentioned it in one of his lists. I think they, I, I recall seeing a list that it was on for Dave, if I remember correctly. Probably, yeah. So Dave, you have seen this, correct? Absolutely. Okay, okay. So it was written and directed by a guy with a fantastic name, Joel Anderson. So he uh, he wrote and directed this thing. Like I said, it is an Australian film. It actually stars probably no one you have ever heard of, which is to this movie's great benefit. And I'll get to that in a second. But it stars Rosie Trainer, David Pledger, Martin Sharp, Talia Zucker. They are the Palmer family. They make up the primary uh, characters in this motion picture. And it is a documentary, a faux documentary a shockumentary uh, as it were style of film it's got a little bit of found footage in it it's not overly found footage but it's there is found footage elements uh, that are part of the plot as the movie progresses now i heard of this film from several different people uh, over the years i actually remembered uh, reading something with mike flanagan and he was championing it at the time it was i think after dark picked it up if i remember correctly 
around that time, that 2009, 10 timeframe. And they did a release of that along with several other titles. Uh, and so I remember him talking about it and some other people. And I also remember hearing about how unsettling and terrifying it was. And I really wanted to see it. But as so often happens, it is a movie that was on the radar and just over time, just never got to it, fell off the radar. And then I'd hear about it like, oh, yeah, yeah I got to see that. And then just forget about it. And then this rolled around. I was like, I saw it on the list. I was like, boom, here's my reason. I'm going to watch Lake Mungo. So all those times I managed to miss it. And, you know, it's even though it's been out for what, 10 years now, more than 10 years, um, I am truly I, I can't say enough not necessarily because of how I ultimately will feel about the movie, but it's one of those, it's like a little like checkbox thing. It's like an OCD thing. So thank you, Reverse Shane, for making this happen, for putting it on the list. So all that is to say that Lake Mungo tells the story of the Palmer family, and it consists of mom and dad and two kids. They're teenagers. And while picnicking near a dam where they like to go swimming and whatnot, a tragedy befalls them. Now, I'm not going to say what the tragedy is if you look it up or watch anything about this movie, you'll very quickly figure out what it is, but I'm going to try to keep this as spoiler free as I can. So the rest of the movie is about how this family comes to terms with their grief and then possible supernatural events that seem to be happening around them that increase with regularity ever since the tragic event happened. So it's ostensibly a ghost story, and that's not to really give anything away. It is, like I said before, told in this documentary style. Now, this is the absolute strongest element of this movie. Josh, I want you to see this movie if for no other reason that as a professional documentarian, you tell me if this doesn't feel like the most real faux documentary you've ever seen. Like if somebody had sat me down <laughs> in front of this and told me this is real, like and, and not because it's what they show uh, in some of the footage and things like that, but so much just in the performances and the little moments and just stylistically everything about it. It never to me hit a false note. Sometimes hmm. when I watch, you know, a faux documentary and I'm not talking about mockumentaries where it's meant to be funny. All right. That obviously plays a certain way. But I even think of a movie like Waiting for Guffman, you know, the Christopher Guest movie of mm -hmm. all of his movies. I always often sometimes go to that when it's feeling the most real like there's just something about it sure. that, yeah you know it's funny but it's they feel so real even though but of course you know parker posey you know christopher guess so you in eugene levy you can detach and but this you've never seen these people before in fact if you go through most of their imdb credits most of the stars of this movie have nine ten eleven credits most of them are i presume australian tv so these are completely unknown entities to us and you completely buy them and their performances are so subdued and it's it's hard to explain that there's these little touches throughout the movie that give these little details and these little moments and a look on a character's face and how it goes from, you know, they're just explaining something in such a way and it's obviously making them kind of sad, but then they kind of smile at another thought. And it's it's really hard to explain, but the movie really, the documentary part of this is amazing. It really, I, I hmm. honestly, that's probably the heaviest plus in the plus column for this movie, as far as I'm concerned, because I just couldn't get over uh, how effective that was. Well, so, that's one, one of my biggest things with kind of a found footage photo documentary thing. So yeah. Uh, well, I think because it, it does have found footage elements, but it's mm -hmm. told in this more traditional 
I don't know what you call it, like what expository documentary show, where it's just mm-hmm. you're know, talking heads and cutting cutaways to, gotcha. to parts of the houses and as they're narrating it and, you know, and to, to still images and that sort of Ken Burns were resuming it, you know, that kind of it's so and it's done mm-hmm. with such a intentional, subdued pace that it really never loses that, which I, to your point, I think that's one of the problems that befalls a lot of these movies is that it just keeps escalating and it keeps escalating <laughs> and to a point where you know you get to you get to a point where you're like yeah that would never happen or you know give me a break you know how who the hell would do that no one's gonna you know no one's gonna really go there and do that thing so i think that the restraint is both commendable but on some level it is also a little frustrating and i'm gonna circle back around to that last comment in a second so as horror fans we know that our beloved genre <laughs> is a wide spectrum. So we have, you know, gore on one side and we have camp on the other. And we have, you know, uh, we have sort of jump scares and, and cheap jump scares on the other side. And, you know, we have creepy, unsettling and downright disturbing. So it's a pretty wide tent. And I think that this movie would more or less fall into the creepy and unsettling category, which is what I was feeling throughout the beginning of it quite a bit. Um, because after the tragic event happens, even when they're, I'm about to go back to why the documentary part of this was so impressive. When they do the the news footage, because they cut away to news footage as if you know you're watching it on TV, and you know they cut away to like you, know, you see the lower third and the the cops in the background doing their cop work, and and it, again, all of that literally felt like aesthetically the exact same as what I would see on the local news here where I live. Like it didn't, none of it hit that false note but then there were some things that start to unfold on the supernatural end and it's almost more the stories that the characters tell and the way they tell them that it just gives you that heebie-jeebies you know and and so you kind of okay this is kind of creepy okay but the quiet it's quiet horror i think that's probably the best bucket to throw it in it's like quiet horror but it's so subdued that it's it almost would be fair if someone just said actually this is a straight up drama you know, a mystery drama that happens yeah. to have some supernatural aspects to it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, in fact, if you look at the IMDb where they break down the categories, it's it's drama, horror, mystery. Eh, I'd go drama, mystery, horror. I feel like it's the mystery part of it and the drama part of it are a lot a bigger aspect of it than than the horror. The supernatural is there. It's definitely a part of it. But it's not the necessarily the driving force. So, right. It it really is. It's the low the low key nature of the movie that makes it work so well as a doc. But it's also, in my opinion, what hurt it as a horror movie. Okay, so I don't mind slow building, quiet horror. I don't mind it at all. I am not somebody who feels like, oh, you know, I got to have balls to the wall. You know, uh, brain dead slash dead alive. You know, reanimator level stuff. I love that stuff, but I don't have to have that. I am totally cool with a slow burn. You know, creepy gets under your skin. I mean, I, I love the Changeling, the 1980 George C. Scott. I love a good creepy ghost story type movie. But when I think of a comparable movie, and the one I'm about to mention is divisive. I know that, and it is definitely far more of a found footage movie than this movie is. But I think of like par- Paranormal Activity, the first one, which, to be fair, I've only seen the first one. I have, didn't ever bother with the rest of them. I only want to see the first one. I like the first one, okay. 
and it <laughs> amps things up as it goes. And I remember, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but I do remember there being this, at certain key moments of that movie, it gets crazy, but it's all it's friggin' creepy. And it gets kind of scary at points. Now, I know for some people it doesn't go nearly far enough, and I get that. But I think for it to have worked as a found footage movie, it can't go too far or otherwise it's just going to completely obliterate the suspension of disbelief that you're watching footage that somebody left behind so this movie though because it's so subdued it's always like to its credit for being a faux documentary it never comes close to even reaching that level you know what i mean it's like it always just stays in that realm of yeah i totally buy that i could have been flipping over to the discovery channel or whatever and I would have watched this, <laughs> you know, like that's, that's what, cool. Yeah. You know, and it is, it's cool, but I, I guess the, the downside of that is I wasn't nearly as creeped out or freaked out or scared as I wanted to be. You know, I, I went into this after hearing tales of this is one of the most unsettling movies I've seen, or this is, this movie is going to really just freak you out. And maybe that's part of the problem. Had it gone with no expectation, I wouldn't have expected something, <laughs> but because I did, it really, as a horror movie, did not work for me. It really didn't, if I'm being honest. Um, but I think it's interesting to note, I looked, I found a little bit of trivia here, that when asked about this movie, Lake Mungo, the director himself said, and I quote, I don't think it's a supernatural thriller. I think it's meant to be an exploration of grief. And I will tell you, I agree with him. <laughs> I think that's exactly what this is. <laughs> this feels like, in some sense, like hereditary, minus all the crap that's going to traumatize you <laughs> so you know what i mean like i think it's it's got that same vibe to it in a sense it really is much more about the horror of grief and of grieving and what people do to try to deal with that grief than it is like this is a, a creepy ghost story that we're going to terrify you with now that does have those elements i don't want to act like it doesn't but there's a, a key thing that happens uh, not quite maybe around the midway point because it's not a very long movie. It's maybe 87 minutes, something like that. And it's something that happens. And there's actually a couple of key things that happen. And people who've seen the movie are probably one of them. They're probably thinking I'm talking about. I'm not talking about that thing. I'm, talk, I'm not talking about the, an element involving found footage. I'm talking about an element involving a reveal of what a character uh, that is alive had been doing throughout the first part of the movie. Let's just say when that happens. For me, it's almost like it took what the the buildup that I had been feeling. It, it's like it took some of the the fire out of it. It just it didn't the momentum that I thought it was building towards just kind of went and the, the oxygen sort of sucked out of the room. Now, I, I get why they did that and I get where it ends up and how it goes, why that needed to happen that way. But again, because I was expecting super creepy ghost story type movie that's not exactly what I was getting at that point. So I again, go back to what the director's intention was. I think he, he succeeded excellently. It was a really phenomenal movie though, but for me, it didn't work as a horror movie. And that is why my rating that's about to come down. So reverse Shane, please don't hate me, <laughs> but I'm going to give it a 6.5, which is not bad. I think you should rent it. I think it's, it's worth a rental. It's not bad in any way, shape or form. I agree with you in that I think it's as much a family drama and an exploration of grief as it is a horror movie. What really worked for me about the movie and what made it even more disturbing than the supernatural were the family slowly realizing that, uh, and I did review this on the blog, so I'm kind of going back to my review to refresh my memory, but it, it still there are scenes in this movie, and, and I, the one you were talking about about the found footage is definitely one of them. 
and it's it's the daughter basically to, to set it up and it this happens right at the beginning of the movie so it's not really a spoiler so that the, the the daughter is missing and is eventually you know discovered now the family sort of has to deal with uh, a loss in the family but there's an enigma surrounding her the family finds not only did they lose a child but they lost one who may have been a stranger to them that they didn't know nearly as well as they thought they knew and these revelations are coming as the movie is going and there are twists and turns to it and it goes down some very dark roads and the family is going down these roads together while realizing their daughter went down by herself and dealt with all of this stuff and I think that's where a lot of the disturbing elements in the movie came. I'm not necessarily classifying it as horror in that respect, but I definitely think it added to the overall tone of the film that was set up with the supernatural. And I know exactly what you're talking about with uh, the reveal with the supernatural, but I don't think it loses too much steam as it's going. And I think it will still unnerve some people, especially with, with the realization that of what this family is going through they're not only dealing with a loss but they're dealing with this 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 person that they really wish now i wish i knew these things i wish i knew all of this stuff and i could have i could have maybe you know you always think what could i do i could have changed things but i don't even know you don't even think of it from the tragedy just my god what was going on in in this in her life yeah and honestly to that point like everything you said dave was spot on and that movie that you know, you're describing if i were reviewing mm -hmm. it outside of it being a horror movie i would have said right. yeah that movie is an eight that movie is an 8.5 i would because that 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 version of the movie i do think is a very strong movie for what it is but again when i think of it in the sense of okay i'm reviewing this as a you know horror movie and a movie that's mm -hmm. because that's how it's it's put out there is that it's a super oh, yeah. and i just i feel like it's it's much 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 stronger in those dramatic and mystery elements than mm -hmm. it is in the horror elements yes that's there but it's it's such a, a minimal part and quite honestly it's so underplayed at one point in the movie that you're like oh okay well what the hell am i i mean it's you know so i mean right. so do you feel like so joel are you just saying that you're doing that because you're speaking to a horror audience or are you speaking to your expectations or do you feel like the film let me put it this I, way. I, okay go ahead. do you feel like the film promises a horror film but then doesn't deliver on a horror film yes on that level it failed just and i know it's a marketing thing so i'm take it for what it's worth but i look at the poster if you look on imdb and the, just the image that they created the poster of this ghostly type woman who's obviously like part water bursting forth screaming you know it, it's the whole the whole it gives you an impression of being a movie that it is not can what if what well, i just as a thought experiment mm -hmm. you walk into this film you don't know anything about the marketing mm -hmm. you don't know the title you haven't seen a poster you just sit down and watch it are you still as disappointed as what you're describing yeah it sets things up in such a way so early on that you would think ghost story do you know what I mean? And it does end up right. being ghost story like in a lot of ways. I mean, it definitely has a ghost story element to it, but it doesn't work. Not 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 high. Not for me to go any higher than what I went. That's interesting. I mean, like the only thing I can compare this to searching, which is also another film that feels like you're in a realistic setting yeah. 
and a parent learning something about a child that they're not really aware of. Mm -hmm. That's actually a really that, good comparison, actually. Very good. That though, for me, searching worked better though, emotionally. Like I, I would have been the, I would have had the same reaction either way because with searching, I had a better emotional react. Like with the reason why like Mungo doesn't go up higher, I'm praising its faux documentary qualities. And today's point, it does have some interesting things going on uh, with the family dynamic and the secrets and everything. But on an emotional level and on just a like I never because it didn't have any of the horror elements and because it never really connected with me beyond that sort of like, oh, wow, they really did a good job making this look real. It just it it doesn't work for me past a 6.5. I don't necessarily disagree with you either. I don't consider it a primarily a horror film. I really yeah. don't. There are elements like you were saying. And I think if you're looking to see a movie that's going to scare you you will be disappointed here, but it is just unnerving and unsettling enough for it to have stayed with me mm -hmm. a little bit more. I'd come in higher. I'd probably be between a 7.5 and an eight personally, but I went in knowing nothing. I went in, you know, and, and it has been discussed on horror podcasts to that point. So I was expecting some level of horror, but it did. It's, it worked enough for me that I was able to get past that mm -hmm. once, you know, once those elements became secondary that makes yeah. sense all right well that was definitely my at your mercy <laughs> i was at i was at wolfman's mercy uh for that one yes your honor i plead the fifth that's <laughs> that was interesting yeah. so yes i hope uh that was as enjoyable for you as it was for me and now let's go to wolfman josh for his at your mercy review all right. I have picked the film Time Crimes. My At Your Mercy pick comes from David Fear. And David is probably the luckiest of our listeners, actually, because he says here in his tweet, I'd love a full body snatcher episode, including Invasion of the Body Snatchers and the faculty. That's happening. <laughs> he also says, I'd like to hear reviews of Time Crimes and Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight. Those are also both happening. So <laughs> right. I think uh, of, of all of our listeners, David Fear is going to be the one who gets everything he wants. That's very cool. <laughs> Time Crimes is not the film I had originally planned on covering tonight. It's kind of a long, convoluted way that I got to be covering it. And the reason I had intended initially to cover it was because I have seen this movie before. Um, I saw it when it first came out. I own the DVD, but it had been years since I saw it. I think this came out in 2007 or eight in the United States. I bought the DVD there soon after. I have not seen it since. And um, it's interesting looking at the DVD case that I bought. I must have bought this a Blockbuster because one of the special features is a Blockbuster exclusive alternate chronological cut of the film and the reason that's interesting is because this is a time travel movie and so uh it is not necessarily constructed in the chronological order of how things transpired this is a film that um similar to the one that joel just reviewed on imdb it is listed as horror mystery sci-fi i think if i had to define it i would say it's more of a mystery sci-fi horror in that order, um, it's mostly a mystery. It has a science fiction element in that it deals with time travel. And it has some horrific, kind of disturbing imagery and elements. I think ultimately, 
if you're expecting it to be a straight horror film, the ending could feel a little anticlimactic, but if you're just going on the ride as um, kind of a thriller, I think you'll greatly enjoy this. This is directed by Nacho Vigalondo. And for those who don't know Nacho, he's a really interesting filmmaker. I, this is the first of his films that I ever saw was this, but there soon after he was involved with uh, VHS viral. He was involved with the ABCs of death. And in fact, he did my favorite segment in ABCs of death, which was a is for apocalypse. I just thought that was an incredible way to start that film out. It starts off with the bang. I love the tone of it. He brings a, a strange tone to his films where it's both horrific and hilarious at once um he went on to do colossal a couple years back which is the um anne hathaway kaiju movie i don't did you guys either of you see that actually no i haven't i haven't but i, I really want to i've heard good things yeah it's a it's a pretty low-key indie comedy but they're with kind of like this weird kaiju Rock'em Sock'em Robot element to it. It's really, it's a story about Anne Hathaway and Jason Sudeikis' character dealing with their lives and disappointments in the small town, but then it has this kind of fantastical element to it. And it's a really fun film. It almost feels like a Charlie Kaufman movie or something. Uh, and it's very, very unlike uh, the ABCs of death segment and time crimes that Nacho did. The other film that he did that I think is of note is open windows. And I just mentioned searching open windows was the first film that I ever saw that was a, that takes place on screens. And that's a film that stars Elijah Wood and Sasha gray. Uh, it's a film that is much maligned. I think, I think people are pretty split on it. I quite enjoyed it. It's not nearly as good as searching in my opinion, but it was an interesting attempt at doing a screen live film. It was also from the same producer as searching uh, by the way. But um, I think it's, it's a film worth watching if you're interested in that kind of screen life concept that was explored in searching again, not quite as good as that film. Um, several points probably lower in my rating than that film, but still I think worth watching and a fun approach to horror thriller storytelling. So anyway, not just a very diverse director, as you can tell from the films I've described this film, I would say is fairly disturbing. It's has a look of a seventies film. It looks like it was shot on 16 millimeter um, or some kind of, like reversal stock where the colors are very stark and it's very contrasty and grainy. And I just, I don't know. It has a look unlike a lot of films that we see nowadays. It really looks like an Italian film from like 1974 or something, you know, but I, it's, it's a time travel movie that doesn't necessarily deal with the concept of time travel in a technical manner, but it's satisfying as a viewer. It's very fast paced. It's very energetic in its, in its storytelling. This story is about a man who's lives in a new home in the countryside. And one day he's in his yard, kind of enjoying nature. He's looking around with some binoculars and he sees an attractive woman undressing in the woods. And he's, his curiosity level is raised when he notices this. So he 
he watches her undress. Then he notices something strange is going on. There seems to be some kind of struggle and he decides to investigate further. So he heads off into the woods to try to find her. And when he does find her, she's seems to be unconscious or injured naked laying against this rock. And he approaches her to kind of see if she's okay. And suddenly he's attacked by a masked man who stabs him in the arm with some scissors. And the man is wearing a bandaged bloody kind of mask over his face. And he's terrified. He runs off and he hides and this man pursues him. And so he runs to a nearby facility and sneaks inside and he runs into a scientist who's working in the facility and the scientist encourages him here, hide inside this contraption. You can hide in here and he won't find you. So he gets inside the contraption and that contraption was a time machine and he time travels back about an hour and a half. And so the film plays out and kind of the feeling of a real time film, not quite real time, but similar to a film that plays out in real time. And because the whole time travel experience only takes him back an hour and a half in time. And so he starts to try to unravel the puzzle of who this masked person is, what he wants and how he got himself into this mess. And it's a really interesting movie. I think it's one of the better time travel movies of the last 10, 20 years. I think uh, primer is the only other movie that I would say it's on. It's this level. And it has that kind of feel. It's a very, it's stylistically very different from primer, but it is, they are both kind of low budget indie films that deal with time travel in an interesting way. I would say where primer is more technical and brainy. This film has more of a action feel. As I said, it's very fast paced and um, it keeps your, interest in a way that although i love primer that one's going to be less accessible for most audiences this is also not super accessible for a a mainstream audience but i think if you're a cinephile if you're a lover of foreign film you'll be able to enjoy this one um if you if you've never seen like a spanish or italian film or if you dislike as i should say a spanish or italian film you're probably not going to like this and again it has that kind of 70s vibe so tonally and stylistically, it feels like it was shot like in the 60s or 70s. But um, I really enjoyed it. For my money, this is one of the best um, kind of sci-fi thrillers of its time. So I give this one an 8.5. I think it's a high-priority rental for uh, most people. For me, it's a buy. I own it, and I really enjoyed revisiting it. Excellent. I have never seen that movie. And it's been in my queue forever. I did see it a while ago, and yeah, I loved it. I thought it was so clever, and it really pulls you in. At least it pulled me in. I was invested yeah. in this story, and I was like, "Wow, look at look at this, and and look at that, and and it just really clever." I really enjoyed it. I'd come in right about where you are, Josh, eight point five, and I do own it, and I haven't seen it in a long time, and now I'm really anxious to check it out again. So I do have a question. Yeah. Being that it would say IMDb lists this as horror first. Yeah. Since I'm going to have that expectation going in, <laughs> is it going to yeah. greatly affect? <laughs> You're going to hate this. I'm going to like hate this movie <laughs> on all. Lo- okay. Gotcha. <laughs> Just want to make sure we're clear on that. That's my criteria. 
<laughs> no, yeah, it's um, it, I, I mean, look, I think expectation is a real thing, right? We're on a horror podcast talking about the film it was recommended by a horror fan. You look at the poster, it looks much more like a horror movie than the film feels. So I would ignore trailers for the movie. I would not look at the poster if you can help it. It doesn't it. it the marketing for this film is much different than the experience of the film. The, I would the title. Can I be honest with you? The title when I first heard the title, and I remember I think did you guys covered this before, right? I mean, it was covered on HMP at some point, Dave. You I don't think so? Really? I feel like you guys you talked about it or something because I think HMP is where I first heard about the movie. One of you guys mm. talked about it. I I, huh. I am not. I know I'm not imagining that. Somebody out there, bail me out. Maybe when we were talking about ABCs of death, maybe we might have referred to it then. Maybe, but we I talked about Nacho Vigalondo a couple of times. May, but, maybe yeah. I was in that conversation that it got brought up. But I remember the title, my knee jerk reaction was, oh, that sounds like a sci fi movie. It didn't sound like a horror movie. In fact, I almost had the opposite, like, oh, it's a horror movie rather than, oh, it's not a horror movie. It just, the, the reaction just based on the title alone would make me think it wasn't. I mean, I would say for people who saw Colossal and came away thinking there's no horror in that film, this has more than that. That is that really does have like a light indie comedy kind of vibe for the majority of it. But um, I, I would say this is as much horror as Open Windows. And again, horror is not the driving factor here, but it, it because some of the imagery is kind of disturbing and shocking, it feels you know, it, it kind of has a giallo feel, I guess. That's what I would say. It, it, it seems like it's very influenced by Hitchcock, very influenced by De Palma, very influenced by giallo. Like that kind of vibe is is what I get from it. Okay, that's but cool. again, very fast moving for a film like that. Actually, I could see De Palma making a movie like this now that I'm thinking about it. But. That's very cool. Yeah. Would you say that, Dave, or no? I, it's It's been too long since I've seen it for me to get that specific but i think you know from what i remember yes i'm agreeing with you i think it does have that that vibe and it is very fast moving i mean it's not something that that you're gonna feel is moving slow at any point at least i never did yeah i mean i would say the slowest part is probably the first like 15 minutes but it it really ramps and keeps ramping and never stops so it's a fun ride it, it, it is a little anticlimactic as a horror fan, you know, I, but I think um, mm -hmm. if you go in with the expectation that you're watching a, a crime film that has a character that looks like it would be in a horror movie in a story that feels like it should be a sci-fi story, then if that's your expectation, I think you'll enjoy yourself. Very cool. Thank you for that, Josh. All right, so that wraps up our At Your Mercy reviews for this episode and for both of the past episodes. We want to thank everybody that participated. We really appreciate all the submissions and we want to give a special shout out to David Fear, Vicious Victor, and The Reverse Shane. Thank you for recommending all of the movies that we covered in this episode. And now we're entering The Collector's Crypt. Welcome, everybody, to The Collector's Crypt. Uh, this is going to be also a submission from one of the listeners, Andrew from West Virginia. One of the movies he recommended was 1925's Phantom of the Opera. Now, this is a movie I have seen before, obviously. I, I reviewed it on the blog a long time ago, back in 2010, as a matter of fact. But I, I got a Blu-ray 
of it that I was really anxious to, to crack open and check out, and I just never have gotten around to it. So I really wanted to check this Blu-ray out. I might have even mentioned on the, on the show before that I wanted to check this out, and I was going to do it, and I never did. But now I had an excuse, because I really, it's, I want to say it's from Kino? No, Image. Image Entertainment released this. I'm not going to make that same mistake twice. I'm not doing that two, two shows in a row. It was Image, uh, Image released this version of Phantom of the Opera. The movie itself, and I'm just going from a synopsis. This is before I started writing my own synopsis, and I just copied what was on the DVD and then launched right into the review. So I'm going to read what was on the DVD back in 2010, the one that I, I first had. The majestic Paris Opera House rises high above the catacombs, the long-forgotten dungeons and torture chambers of the city of Paris. Lon Chaney gives his greatest performance as the Phantom, the vengeful composer who wears a mask to hide his hideous, deformed face. His love for a young prima donna takes a sinister turn when he abducts her and carries her away to his lair in the depths of the catacombs. The unmasking of the Phantom is one of the most chilling and unforgettable moments in motion picture history. Not really a synopsis as much as it is a sales pitch, but I guess that's what a DVD <laughs> synopsis is for. Okay, so Phantom of the Opera 1925, and a lot has been said about the unmasking scene. It is one of the most iconic scenes in horror cinema and in cinema in general. And Lon Chaney did the makeup himself. He was the man of a thousand faces, and he pretty much created those thousand faces Mostly by himself. I, there's a, I know that um, I have a set upstairs, TCM released uh, about Lon Chaney, some of his films and, and a documentary about him. And they actually show his makeup kit. It's still around. And all of the, the, the different uh, prosthetics and, and uh, the makeup brushes and all that he used. A very talented guy in that respect. And, and the makeup he creates for this is ghastly. When they had that unveiling, you can just imagine audiences the, back in 1925 just gasping and screaming because it is truly, even today, very disturbing. He's, he's very disturbing. It's almost like Max Schreck and Nosferatu still gives you the willies. It, it creeps you out. And that's what you get from Lon Chaney in this film. But it's his performance. And, and I know I praised Lon Chaney before. But I just can't, I don't think I can do it enough because every time I see a movie that starred Lon Chaney, this is Lon Chaney Sr. we're talking about, obviously. Lon Chaney, his son, Lon Chaney Jr. is also a horror actor, Wolfman, and um, a lot of those films. He played Frankenstein's monster, and he played the mummy eventually in the Universal series. But Lon Chaney Sr., he was a guy who, during a time in, in silent cinema when most actors are felt they needed to be very animated. They needed to really push the performance because there's no sound. They've got to really emote and they're, right. and they're waving their arms and they're throwing their bodies. And if they're afraid, they're throwing themselves into a corner and shuddering. And, but Lon Chaney never did that. He used his hands a lot. He used his facial expressions and he could be over the top, but only when the character demanded it. Now, in Phantom of the Opera, the character demands it. And there are some very, not even, I'm not going to say over the top. It fits the character. There are some very strong emotional scenes. And this character gets tied up in them, especially towards the end of the film. But when you see Lon Chaney, he can really move you 
just with his eyes, and I'm thinking of movies like The Unknown and The Penalty. He plays a guy with no arms, and in the pen in the, the Unknown, in in The Penalty, he plays a character who's missing his legs from the knees down, and he created the look of those characters. He created a belt that tied his legs up. He can only do like 20, 30 seconds of filming at a time. It was so painful and it bothered him for months afterwards, but he did it. He walked around on those knees and he moved and you're looking and you're saying, I don't see his legs because he mm -hmm. did such a great job of doing this. This was him. This was how he worked. And in Phantom of the Opera, it was the makeup but it was also how the character slowly slips, not slowly. You get the, the feeling he was always on the edge. But now that he's fallen in love with this girl who does not reciprocate that love, he's over the edge and he's completely mad. And there's a scene on a rooftop where he's like screaming after making a, a realization about, about the woman he loves and, and her, the, the man she's in a relationship that wow i mean it's it's still very disturbing you can't even hear the scream but you can sense it you can sense in the way that that cheney is selling the performance that this is coming like from deep within him and it shakes you it really does and he's he's the main reason you're going to want to see this film the sets are yeah, great and yeah. the sets are still standing i think at, at at universal studios i heard a couple of the opera boxes are still up so that looks really good but it's cheney it's cheney himself he's the reason you're going to want to see this and when he's not on screen i think you feel it in the movie you feel when it's just like they're doing this sort of romance between uh christine and uh raul who's you know they're they're the lovers it's not there it just it's not as strong uh there's a there's these comical new owners of the opera house and they have some interest you know it's it's it, they're there a little bit of comic relief there's a, there's a couple other characters there for comic relief and they're good but it's cheney i mean he, you just will be mesmerized uh by his performance in this film as as i think you would be by many of of his films if you're not familiar with lon cheney senior do yourself a favor and and just check out as many even even i can't think of any movie that i thought well there are some of them that are not great but he's always great he's always giving it his all and i think it's a shame he was originally going to play Dracula in 1931. That's why Todd Browning took on the picture to begin with. And then, of course, Lon Chaney died in, in his 40s. He was not able to do it for health reasons. But I don't, know, I don't know if he had passed by that point or he just wasn't able to be in the movie. I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly when he passed away. Now, I can't see anybody other than Bela Lugosi playing Dracula right now. So I think it worked out for the best because right. Bela was, you know, I'm a Bela Lugosi fanatic and I I loved him in Dracula. I really did. So it worked out for the best, but it still would have been interesting to see Cheney's take on that character. It really would just just to see it, just to see how he might have interpreted Dracula. So that's the movie. Now, when we get down to the Blu-ray just to give you a little bit of a again it's from image entertainment it has what i consider one of the best commentary tracks i've heard a guy named john marsalis he's a silent film scholar and a lon cheney expert i think he had a, a website uh dedicated to lon cheney and his films he covers so much about this movie he covers like from from the budget from all of the small character actors and their careers 
to the behind the scenes, how Cheney and the director weren't getting along. And it got to the point where, where the director would tell someone else to what Cheney was going to do. And this person would go to Cheney and Cheney would say, well, to hell with him. I'm doing what I want anyway. All of these stories about this and about the sets and everything, this guy covers them. The John Marsalis is his name. It's not scholarly. You know, you get to some of them where you, you feel like they're, they're a little too scholarly. This is at that level where you're learning a lot, but he's also very personable in his approach. And it really is, if I were to list like top five commentaries, I would put this in the top five. I was that impressed yeah. with it. There are also three different scores because there are three different or two different versions of the movie. The 1925 original and the 1929 reissue. And one of the things I learned from John Marsalis was the 1929 reissue had sound put in. They shot additional scenes with sound because that was the advent of sound. And they, one of the things that they did back then was pull out some of their, some of their classic films that they knew were winners throw a little sound in them and re-release them to try to capitalize on that. And this movie again made money, you know, the reshoots and everything. I think uh, John Marcellus said cost around $113,000. And I think this movie brought in $400,000 again in 1929, four years after its initial release. Uh, and he made the point to say, and everybody who, who gets on, you know, Spielberg for taking out the, the guns and ET Hollywood has been doing that since the dawn of sound in, in the industry. So it's nothing new. It's nothing new to try to, to try to re-release a movie with a different version and try to bring in my, and I, it's, it's been happening for a long time was his basically what he said, but there are three different scores. The 1925 original has a score by Frederick Hodges. The 1929 reissue has a score by the alloy orchestra and another by Gabriel Thibodeau. Now, uh, that's the one I watched because that's the one that contains the commentary track was the um, score by Gabriel Thibodeau. And one of the interesting things is that there's a special feature where they interview Gabriel Thibodeau. He has spent some 16 years by this point in 2004. It was this was for a uh, PBS series called Art Express. But anyway, but in 2004, Gabriel Thibodeau had spent 16 years, something like that, accompanying silent films at the Cinematheque in Quebec. And he's talking about doing that, you know, coming up with the scores for the films during the interview. And it's interesting because he does talk about his score for Phantom of the Opera. That's his most famous work. After doing that for the Cinematheque, they, everyone was really impressed with it. And he's done it all over North America to accompany the film and in parts of Europe. And it even made some VHS releases. His score was used for some of the VHS releases of the of this film, or video releases, maybe on DVD too. I'm not sure they said video. I was assuming VHS, but it might have been DVD as well. But it also shows him sitting there, and it's interesting because the movie he's accompanying while they're taking these sort of other shots of him was Nanook of the North. I thought that was pretty cool that he's coming up with his own score for Nanook of the North. is is is. The way he did it was he would get a special screening of the movie, watch it, and then just sort of come up with the score while he's going and then sit at the piano while while the audience is there. Phantom of the Opera was his most famous, though. That's that's what he's most known for. Uh, other than that, there is an image gallery 
which is cool because it's set to music from one of the scores. I wasn't sure if it was Gabriel Thibodeau's or another one. It runs for 13 minutes. It has behind behind the scenes pictures, set construction, Lon Chaney with and without his makeup, publicity stills, a whole lot more. It's 13 minutes. It's really pretty cool. There's a feature that displays each page of the original script. That's completely silent for some reason. And another showing the entirety of an early collectible booklet. So those, it's not like there's a ton of special features. But in this case, it's definitely quality over quantity. Because that documentary on Gabriel Thibodeau I thought was very interesting. The fact that there are three different scores and two different versions of the film. But definitely the audio commentary is, is worth it. If, if you're into silent film... Uh, especially that's one you're going to want to, you're going to want to check out. So, I mean, this is, for me, this is a classic film. It's, I, I don't, it's not on my list of like top films, but I'm still saying a 9.5 damn near a 10 for Phantom of the Opera. And this, this Blu-ray release is definitely worth buying. Cool. I love, I love the sound of that. I want to get that. It's incredible, Dave. Yeah, I do. I recommend it. I really do. And I, I'm looking forward to going back and I, there'll be a time, you know, I, that's one of the things I like about the universal films is the, is listening to the commentaries. You go back and listen to the commentary for Dracula, the mummy and all those films. They, they give you like a plethora of information. And this one even goes beyond those. That's, that's what I was really impressed with. All right. So that is our collector's crypt to end our at your mercy episode part dose. So guys, I think that went exceedingly well, despite mm. my lambasting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you, you, any, any, any final things you want to talk about before we give our promos and pimpage? No, just another big thanks to, to the listeners uh, with, with, the selections they came up with. Uh, I know we said that last episode, but we've even gotten more since then. And it's unfortunate. Hopefully we don't get more now because now we're done. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I will put all of the listener selections in the show notes for this episode um, that we get. And then you can also go back, of course, to the show notes for the last episode to see the previous 114 uh, listener picks and, there's a lot of good movies in there. I think uh, we'll all be drawing from them for a long time to come. And hopefully that will be a cool resource for our listeners as well. If they want to go and look for a fun film recommendation. All right. So on that note, Wolfman, you want to tell the good folks where they can find you online. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and letterbox at Icarus arts. Actually, I do want to just mention one more time that Universal Monsters Cast is posted, but it's not at our universalmonsterscast.com website. It is at monsterscast.libson.com. So if you want to go find those episodes, they are up there, and we will be adding to them soon. I uh, I noticed that some people thought those links were dead, and so uh, they, I just want to let people know they are available. All right. Thank you for letting us know that. And Dave, where can they find you? As always, at dvdinfatuation.com. You can find me on Twitter at DVD Infatuation. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, Letterboxd, and the Land of the Creeps at landofthecreeps.blogspot.com with Greg Amortis, Haddonfield Hatchet, Jesse Robbins, uh, Bill Van 
Eagle now is a, is a member, and he's he's been doing a great job over there as well. And of course, Justin Beam stops by from time to time, so check that out also. All right. Oh, I didn't know Bill was like a full like co-host over there. Now. He has become the last uh, three episodes. Bill's been over there, and he's doing a phenomenal job. We reviewed the films of 1974. And, you know, we each had our favorites that we were taking, and I'd seen a few others. I thought I could talk about it. Well, Bill came having watched over 50 movies wow. from 1974. Nice. Yeah. So he, he comes he comes more than prepared. He's, uh, he's definitely dedicated. Cool. All right. Thank you, Dave. And I can also be found at Universal Monsters Cast and, of course, Retro Movie Geek with Daryl and Peter, where... We're idiots. That's basically what it boils down to. So uh, be sure to check us out there if you know you want to hear idiots talk about things. But but in, in Daryl and Peter's defense, they yeah. did like Lake Mungo. They did. And they, they, they <laughs> liked it for all the right reasons and not the reasons that I didn't. So thanks for pointing that out, Dave. All right. So everybody out there, remember, we love reading and responding to your comments. So hope you'll get involved in the horror movie podcast community. It's truly a great group of people. You can leave a comment in the show notes for this episode at horrormoviepodcast.com where you can find this and all the 173 other past episodes. You can connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at horrormoviecast. And if you'd like to support Horror Movie Podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. You can get your listener-designed HMP t-shirts at teespring.com slash stores slash horrormoviecast. You can also become a patron of Movie Podcast Network for only $2.50 a month, which will give you access to Movie Podcast Network monthly special features episodes at patreon.com slash moviepodcastnetwork. We want to thank singer-songwriter Fred Ingram for the use of his music for the Horror Movie Podcast theme song. You can find more of Fred's music at frederickingram.com. We also want to thank composer Kagan Breitenbach for his arrangement and orchestration of Fred's original theme, which opens the show. You can find more of Kagan's work at kaganbreitenbach.com. And that's it for this episode. We hope you'll join us again Monday after next for a Frankensteinian episode, which is totally different than the last two we've done. Because <laughs> we picked the movies. That's, I guess, the big difference. Thank you for joining us for Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. I do want to mention because you you talked about the unknown briefly, and I remember seeing mm-hmm. that some years back. And it, you're watching it with your mouth hanging open, realizing that you know he was doing everything with his feet and what he had to train himself to be able to do. And he had his yes. arms pinned behind his back, and just it's incredible. I mean, it's just it's it's mind blowing when you realize what he was able to achieve. It really and that is. that performance in that film, the unknown. Oh yeah. Not it. Imp- it's it's amazing because there, you know, he didn't even have his hands to work with. Uh, he uh, he's using nothing but his face. You see the pain in his face. You see the 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 heartbreak when the when he's not going to win the girl who was Joan Crawford. By the way, Joan Crawford has given Lon Chaney credit for teaching her how to act for the screen because of that film. Not only that. Burt Lancaster said that Lon Chaney's performance, Lon Chaney Sr.'s performance in that film was the greatest screen performance he had ever seen. And that's the level that Lon Chaney was was at. He did make one sound film, a remake of The Unholy Three, which, you know, was good. 
I liked it. Um, not his, you know, I don't think, I don't think sound, I don't think him, I think he would have been just fine in sound films, but he did such a great job in the silence emoting and, and just using what he had that it, it was a shame. You know, he was one of the ones I felt kind of like, eh, it's kind of a shame that silence went away, especially for Lon Chaney senior, because he would, he had just mastered it, uh, so perfectly. Right. Yeah, it's it's really sad, actually. Yeah, yeah, died way too young. I have sort of a, I don't know if love hate seems too strong, but I have a mixed relationship with uh, De Palma films. So, uh, I you said you know it's a comedy, and I think of I don't really think of De Palma and comedy other than when maybe I think of the movie Snake Eyes, but I don't think mm-hmm. that was intentional. <laughs> so well, early on, he did a lot of comedy, like Hi Mom with with uh, Robert De Niro, and and oh yeah, like, yeah, like dark, like darker comedies, yeah. And he did Wise Guys in '86, which I love. Oh, that's right. I always forgot that was. Him. I love Wise Guys. Oh wow, that's one with. Uh, um, Kirk Douglas, right? And no, no, did it's Danny DeVito and uh, Joe Piscopo. It was, it was, oh, tough guys. That's one with uh, you're thinking tough guys. Tough yeah, guys. this is okay. This is wise guys, which gotcha. is funny. But I, I'm with you. I think De Palma. I have kind of a I, I can't say I love hate. I do. I do enjoy most of his movies. I really had a strong negative reaction to Redacted. Yeah, I didn't. See, I didn't see Redacted. I haven't seen about, much of his new stuff. Yeah, about ten years ago now, I really disliked Redacted, but. Other than that, I do like Blowout is is a great movie. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, he's, had, he's made some movies that I really, really love. I mean, Carrie Dress is fantastic. Dress to Kill is yeah. awesome. And Carrie, yeah, absolutely. And so many yeah, um, really new, good new titles, too. And like really so many films cuts, that very few, I hadn't heard a lot of before. And I'm thinking, kind of lesser wow, known these, films are, these are interesting. And, Unfortunately, and I couldn't find some All the ones I watched. Hey, guys. That was the weirdest thing ever. Both of you start talking and you just kept going like you didn't hear the other person. Can you not hear I each couldn't, other? I did. I didn't hear Josh. No, wow, I didn't hear that Josh. Was trippy. Didn't hear that. that was so weird. You both like we're going, going. And I'm like, are they going to somebody going to get They're not given. They're not given any ground. I, I didn't realize Josh was talking. <laughs> I couldn't hear him at all. Wow. That was so wow. weird. Okay. Do you, guys, weird. do you hear each other now? Now, mm-hmm. now I do. Yes. Okay. So I apologize. I just didn't want to keep going because it was like you both were just going, man. I was like, okay. Get, that was so Go surreal. for it, Dave. All right. Just real quick. 